0: Mother's Day if we did not share our annual Mother's Day story. But you see, after years of getting in trouble with certain stories that I chose, I have deferred to the recently formed Mother's Day joke approval committee, and if you have a problem with it, then you need to see the women who comprise that committee. The story is told of a man who was walking along a California beach who was in deep prayer to the Lord, and he said, Lord, you have promised to give me the desires of my heart. Please give me a confirmation that you will grant that. Suddenly the sky darkened and the Lord in a booming voice said, I have searched your heart and determined it to be pure. I think that I can trust that you will not disappoint me. Because you have been faithful to me, I will grant you one wish. The man said, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but I'm deathly afraid of flying and I get very seasick in boats. Could you please build a bridge to Hawaii from California so I can drive there whenever I want? The Lord laughed and said, well, that's impossible. Think of the logistics. How would the supports ever reach the bottom of the Pacific? Think of the concrete. Think of the steel. And most importantly, your request is very materialistic and disappointing. I could do it, but it is hard for me to justify. Take a little more time and make another wish, one you think would honor and glorify me. After several minutes of thinking and much debate, he went back to him and said, Lord, as you know, before I became a Christian, I was married four times. My wives always said that I was insensitive to their needs. So I wish I could understand women. I want to know how they feel and what they're thinking. I want to know why they cry and how to make them truly happy. Lord, that's my desire. After a few minutes of silence, God said, So do you want two lanes or four on that bridge? One of the most common things for many to do when considering the problems, in the, world, uh, the problems in the world today is to complain. After all, it's easy to complain, it doesn't require much thought or preparation, it just kind of comes naturally, almost automatically. For example, you know, I've been teaching here at Calvary and Kindred for 18 years, averaging about 48 weeks out of a year. That comes to 864 messages, excluding retreats, conferences, chapels and other special occasions. 864 messages, tell a joke or a story, and someone will say, you know, I think you've told that one before. <laughs> Die, you think so? <laughs> you, know, it's, it's, you know, it's easy to complain, you know, and it's especially true as it relates to our response to those in authority. Children complain about parents, students about their teachers, players about coaches and management. Employees about their employers, Christians about church leaders, citizens about governing authorities, and so it goes. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy that it is God's will for his people to pray rather than to complain. To pray. And in this passage, we find the priority of prayer that's laid out for us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. ...where we see that it's God's priority that we pray. 1 Timothy chapter 1, no, chapter 2, we'll start with verse 1, we read these words. First of all then, I urge that in and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings... ...be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority... In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. ...as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to, pl- to pray... ...lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In this passage, there are five things that we learn about prayer... ...and the first which stands out as we go through this... ...as I've already mentioned in the title... ...and that is the priority of prayer. In First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, the beginning of the verse... ...we find that he says that... Um, First of all, then, I urge, or first of all, then, some translations have, therefore, I exhort. First of all, the key word in understanding what's being said are the words then or therefore, depending on the translation that you have in front of you. But the words then or therefore helps us understand that prayer is directly related to the previous passage and its contents. If you've been with us and you're familiar with the passage that precedes this, you'll recall Paul addressed the problem of false teachers and their straying from God's truth. He called out Hymenius and Alexander as examples of pastors and teachers, pastor-teacher, who had strayed off course and suffered spiritual shipwreck as a result of not heeding their primary calling. There was a point in time where they were raised up to teach the word of God. They were men who were entrusted to a local assembly, a small congregation. If you remember, there were literally hundreds of them that would be meeting in, in, in small homes or larger homes, depending. And they were called to preach the word of God. ...and they were called to teach sound doctrine, they neglected to do so. They were called to proclaim the gospel, they neglected to do so... ...and instead substituted a works righteousness system... ...saying that somehow or another we can work our way into God's favor. They neglected to proclaim the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They also neglected to defend the faith... ...which allowed others to come in and infiltrate the body of Christ... You know, Jesus warned often of wheat and tares and how hard it is and difficult it is to discern the difference between those who are professors of faith and those who truly possess eternal life. He also warned of false teachers who were wolves in ravenous clothing, who would come, you know, dressed in sheep's clothing, so to speak. But we need to examine that which was said. If you recall, it was very important that we examine the Word of God as we've been exhorted this morning to examine the Word of God, to receive it with great eagerness, but examining it daily to make sure that what we have just heard that was proclaimed in whatever form it is, whether it's from a pulpit, whether it's from a Bible study setting, wherever it is that we examine what was taught to make sure that it lines up with the truth of God's word. They neglected to do so. They violated their own conscience. They, if, if they were truly born again, they violated their own consciences that they knew what they were called to do and chose to do something otherwise. And as a result, they suffered spiritual shipwreck. ...there was no recourse for the direction that they were going... ...and in fact, the Apostle Paul says, let's get them out of our midst... ...and turn them over to Satan so that they will be disciplined by God... ...through not the fellowship of the body of Christ... ...but being out in the world with everybody else... ...and let Satan go ahead and discipline... ...and God uses Satan for his glory and his purposes. What can we do to prevent this from happening to us? See, they forgot that it's the power of the gospel... ...that transforms sinners into saints... The Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the gospel that saves those who believe. Paul then gave an example of his own testimony to reinforce this truth. Remember, I was the most lost person that you ever see in the world, and yet it was by God's grace, who is rich in grace and mercy, that I came to know Christ as my Savior, that I was born again from above. As bad as you think people are, there is always hope for those who repent and turn from sin and turn to God. God who is great in mercy and also in grace. And the question is, is that what can we do to prevent this from happening to us? Personalize it. What can I do? In me, in a teaching position, what can I do to prevent the same shipwreck that happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander from happening to me? What can you do to prevent the same spiritual shipwreck from ha- happening to you? Going astray and, and, and excluding your own conscience, as it were, of God's leading in your life and the Holy Spirit through his word. You know, what can we do to keep teachers from going astray, pastors from going astray? What can we do to recognize false teaching? And the answer is given to us, and it's very important that we understand, he says, we are to pray. Therefore, then, first of all, he says, I urge you. There's a sense of priority and a sense of urgency. I urge you to pray. It's important to make the connection that between what had just been spoken of and what he was now introducing, there is, a, there is a connection there that is important that we don't miss. The bridge is prayer. See, Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, he warned the disciples as they continued to fall asleep in the garden, instead of keeping watch as he had commanded them, he came to them and said, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He said, Stay alert. Don't put your guards down. Don't become lazy and apathetic in your faith and in, and in your attendance of Bible studies or services or wherever it is that you go. Don't become apathetic. Don't take it for granted. No, same time, same place, same thing, same stuff. Don't get lazy. ...stay alert, keep watching and praying. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He said, sadly, though, they continue to fall asleep... ...as we know from that account... ...and as our Lord continued to go back... ...He found them sleeping again. And so it is for many of us today. Paul pleads with Timothy... ...he begs him, as indicated by the word urge... ...I beg you to pray. And this sense of urgency to pray... ...is seen throughout the Bible... Why is it so important to pray? Why is it the first priority? Notice he says, first of all, above everything else, pray. Why? Because prayer is one of our mightiest weapons for God. It is by which God accomplishes more than anything else. Ephesians 6 says to pray at all times. And then it goes on to say, and be on the alert. To pray. To be on the alert. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. If you recall when we went through Acts not long ago, that we came to this passage in Acts, chapter 6. And starting with verse 1, we read the words, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. He said, But select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and the statement, found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, Philip and Procreus, Nicanor, Timon, parneas Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Here we have a situation where the number of people had continued to increase because as the word of God was proclaimed, God used his word as he does because it's faith by faith uh, through hearing and by hearing the word of God that people are added to the numbers as far as God's children is concerned, his family. In this particular passage, there was a problem because there was needs and where there's people, there are needs. The problem was that the apostles were being sidetracked from their primary calling. Their primary calling was to pray and minister the word of God. They were now meeting the needs of people... ...rather than spending the time that was necessary to pray... ...and to minister the word of God. They went before the congregation and said... ...pick out from yourselves among you... ...men who meet certain qualifications... ...that we'll read about in 1 Timothy 3... It wasn't a volunteer system. They just didn't randomly pick people or choose who they wanted. They said that we pray about those who God would raise up from your midst that are qualified for this tremendous position of overseeing the resources that God provides through His church. And I want you to notice very carefully that the statement that found full approval was the statement in verse 4 that says, but for ourselves as apostles, we will devote ourselves to prayer. And to the preaching of the word of God. To the ministry of God's word. That is the statement that found full approval. That was the statement that was highly significant. And that was the problem in the context in which they addressed it. The problem wasn't the needs. The problem wasn't meeting the needs. The problem was the fact that the apostles were straying from their primary calling, which was to pray and preach the word of God. God can handle needs. Don't worry about that. God will raise up people. As there are needs, God raises up people. Who he leads, he equips, he enables, he empowers. God does not have a problem meeting needs. And he does throw through qualified people whom he gifts to do so. It is very important to understand that the context is that they were straying from prayer and from the proclaiming of the ministry of the Word of God. The top priority of all pastors, teachers, is first, to pray. And second, to minister the Word of God. And that is the statement that found full approval. Several years ago, it's going on four now, that several men in this particular group, got together and we began to pray. We formed a prayer group. Really, for nothing else but to pray, we were convicted by the Word of God that we should pray. We got together to pray. You know, I've been a lot, a lot of Bible studies, involved in a lot, speak quite a bit, and, you know, one thing that God had convicted me of is the fact that, you know what, Chuck, but when do you pray? And we got together to pray. And the primary focus of our prayer was that we would pray for those who are pastors and teachers at Calvary Church here in Santa Ana, specifically for Pastor Mitchell, for those pastors and teachers who are heading up other Bible studies. And our prayer specifically has always been that the pulpit would be a place of enlightenment and enrichment through the word of God and not become a place of entertainment like so many churches have advocated their pulpits. We continue to do that today. We will continue to do that. Because the subtle deception of the enemy is that we need to become more politically correct. We will try to reach people in a variety of ways. And I say that is nonsense from the pit of hell. It is heresy because it's only the power of the word of God that can transform a sinner into a saint. And so as we see this, we begin to look and we ask ourselves the question, we need to pray. We need to pray that that is true of every pastor and teacher. We need to also pray that we recognize error and lies when we hear them, no matter who is sharing them. We need to examine what is taught against this objective standard of the word of God. Regardless of the consequences that we face, when we confront such error, that those in error will not like it. I believe Alexander and Hymenaeus didn't like it. But I don't think Paul cared much about pleasing men because he lived to please God. See, what can I do? I hear this often when there's difficulties, wherever it is in, in, in life. You know, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your business, whether it's on a team, whatever. I hear all the time, what can I do about it? You know what? First of all, what you need to do above everything and anything else, and what I need to do, it's pray. It's pray. God's mightiest weapon is prayer. Prayer. The effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. We need to pray that if we can turn a brother from sin, you know, hey, praise God for that. If a brother keeps going like Alexander and Hymenaeus and, 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 and they turn their back on their heritage, they turn their back on the word of God, they begin to distort and manipulate the word of God, then we just pray that God would expose it so all can see and that we can turn him over to Satan so God can discipline him and hope at the end of the day to restore him and bring him back if he's a brother in Christ. See, but the bottom line of, of what we're being told here is very simple. We need to pray. We need to stay on the alert, and we need to pray. See, the pattern of prayer that he lays out was mentioned by our speaker, missionary speaker this morning. And it's interesting as we look at it because there's a pattern of prayer that he expresses. So often we're like the disciples, I know that I am, who didn't, you know, who didn't know how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. You know, I don't do enough of it. I don't know how to pray. You know, teach me how to study your word. Teach me how to examine it against the objective standard. Teach me to, when the Holy Spirit living with me says, you know what, there's something about what I heard that just doesn't sound right. Teach me how to go into the word of God, not looking for what I wanted to say, but looking for what you have to say so that we can then compare to what's being said versus what the truth is. You know, so much of what's spoken from pulpits today comes from second opinions. You know, it's the book you'd think that everybody was studying. Second opinion, what's my opinion? Who cares what your opinion is? This is what I feel, this is what I think, this is what I believe. Who cares? We need to be more concerned about, well, what does God say? What does he want us to do? What is glorifying to God? What is pleasing to God? Not what your personal agenda is. Who cares? Let's search the word of God. The pattern of prayer as we see this, the words that come up are very interesting because they have specific meanings. Words have meanings. Well, when did that happen? You know, the word entreaties. The word entreaties means, from the Greek it means to lack or to be deprived. This prayer arises from a sense of need. You know, God knows we have needs. And yet at the same time he tells us to come to him with our needs. Lord, this is my need. Give us this day our daily bread. That's, that's a need that I have. I need to make a living for my family. I need work. I need to make you know, so much money. I need this. I need that. We've got to be careful what our needs and our greeds are. We've got to learn what contentment is. 1 Timothy 6. But in the word of God, all those things are revealed to us. But the bottom line of all of it is, is I, I got needs. You've got needs. And you know what? Don't be ashamed or embarrassed to go to God with those needs. He's waiting to hear from us. He tells us to, to pray with entreaties. The word supplication. Don't ever be embarrassed. God will never rebuke you for crying out to him in your time of need. In fact, he invites us to boldly approach the throne of grace. For it is there that we find grace and help in our time of need. I love the story that Howard Hendricks tells about a couple that they had in Dallas a number of years ago. says he sold his business at a loss, went into vocational Christian work, and things got rather rough. There were four kids in the family. One night at family worship, Timmy, the youngest boy, said, Daddy, do you think Jesus would mind if I asked him for a shirt? Well, of course not. Let's write that down in our prayer book, our journals. So they wrote it down, shirt for Timmy, and then she added, size seven. You can be sure that every day Timmy saw to it that they prayed for the shirt. After several weeks, one Saturday, the mother received a telephone call from a clothier in downtown Dallas, a Christian businessman. Quote, I finished my July clearance sale, and knowing that you have four boys, it occurred to me that you might use use something we have left. Could you use some boys' shirts? She said, what size do you have? He said, size seven. How many do you have? He said, twelve. Now, many of us might have taken the shirts, stuffed them in the uh, bureau drawer, made some casual comment to the children, but not this wise set of parents. That night, as expected, Timmy said, don't forget, Mommy, let's pray for the shirt. Mommy said, we don't have to pray for the shirt any longer, Timmy. He said, how come? He said, the Lord has answered your prayer. He said, he has? She said, right. And as previously arranged, Brother Tommy goes out and gets one shirt, brings it in, puts it down on the table. Little Timmy's eyes are like saucers. Tommy goes out, gets another shirt, brings it in. Out and back, out and back, out and back. He piles up 12 shirts on the table. Timmy thinks God is going into the shirt business. He says, but you know, there's a little kid in Dallas today by the name of Timothy... ...who believes there is a God in heaven... ...interested enough in his needs... ...to provide boys with shirts... ...size seven. Do you have needs? How big or how small is your God? See, the word prayer or prayers... ...has to do with worship. It's a word that is used most frequently... ...in the New Testament... ...for those who come to God in worship. You ask for nothing... The whole purpose is to fellowship with him, to worship. You know, and according to Jesus in John chapter 4, a beautiful fact, you know what? Let's look at it. John chapter 4. And I'm praying now because I need more time. You may join me in that prayer if you feel so led. John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, starting with verse 20, it's a beautiful encounter between our Lord and a Samaritan woman. She says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, speaking of the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he was called Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The problem, where to worship God. The debate, Mount Gerizim, according to the Samaritans. The temple in Jerusalem, according to the Jews. The answer, hey, you know what? It's not about where you worship any longer. It's not about a place. It's not about this place or that place. This building, that building. This church, that church. You know, this city, that city. This country, that country. What it's all about is that we would worship him in spirit and truth. As I just read in the story from Howard Hendricks... The family had a family worship time. We can worship God wherever we are because the Spirit of God lives within the hearts of believers today. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we worship God in spirit and truth wherever we are and our hearts are right before God. It's very important that the debate of a place is answered and dealt with according to the Word of God. The prayers of a heart that's right with worship is, God, I can worship you in many ways and in many places because my heart is right with you no matter where I am. It's important that we recognize and not get hung up up on where worship takes place. We worship where we are in spirit and truth because God's spirit lives within us. Our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit petitions. Petitions has to do with the idea, it's used only two times in the New Testament here and in 1 Timothy 4, 5 carries the idea to to fall in with someone or to get involved with them. It has the idea of intercession. Daniel in chapter 9, verses 17 through 19 Daniel prayed for his people. It is to empathize with another person put yourself in their shoes as it were walk in their shoes, their footsteps identify with their troubles their difficulties, their sorrows and then pray on their behalf to intercede for them. That's something that we need to do regularly. Not only ask of God of our needs to be filled, but just go to God and worship him. God, you're awesome. I think of the story of Timothy and I go, God, how small is my faith? How awesome are you, the God of the universe? What's big for you? What can I be struggling with that's so big that even you're going to have a tough time with it? Are you kidding me? Who is man that you are mindful of us? We are but dust, and yet God considers our needs. He says, come to us in your time of need. Come to me with boldness, confidently before the throne of grace, that in your time of need you will find grace and mercy. To worship him, to petition or intercede on the behalf of others... To be others-oriented. Consider others more important than yourself. To pray for them in their struggles, and their daily activities, in their life, and their walk. To pray for those who don't know Christ as their Savior, that they would come to know Him. To pray for those who are having difficulties in their marriages and families and in their finances in every area of life. To intercede on their behalf, showing that you have compassion for others other than just yourself. To have this attitude that was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not require equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and and he took an appearance as a man, and coming in the likeness of man, he put God's will ahead of his own. We need to be people who not only pray for others, but that we pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. I like to call it an attitude of gratitude. You know, it's so, so easy to become discontent. It's so easy to take things for granted. I meet with one of the guys on the Angels. We have a time of discipleship, and yesterday we were talking about, do you remember what it was like to be first called up from the minor leagues? To walk into a major league stadium, a major league clubhouse, and to go, wow, you know, just that overwhelming sense that I'm here. One of the guys told me that when he was called up, he was called up to play at at, at Yankee Stadium. ...from the minor leagues to Yankee Stadium to play for the Angels... ...and they hand him an envelope when he went in the clubhouse... ...and he opened it up and it filled with cash because it's their per diem money. He said he went back to the hotel and he threw all the cash on the bed... ...and he jumped on it and he threw it up in the air. He's like, this is unbelievable. You know, to have that attitude of gratitude, I said, well, what's happened... How easy it is to take it as commonplace. Now I deserve it. Now I belong. Now, you know, this, that. I want to renegotiate my contract. Other people are making more. It's so easy, and not just to condemn athletes, because we're all guilty of it. The attitude of gratitude. We're talking about rejoicing in the wife of our youth. How we can take one another for granted. Men, to take our wives for granted. Go back, and he says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Remember the day you first met. Remember when you saw her and you said, this is the gal I want to spend the rest of my life with. This is the person, God, you have for me. I'm involved in weddings and planning, I see that look in people's eyes, and it's like, you know, it's embarrassing sometimes. I feel like, you know, like some kind of, you know, uh, one of those peeping Toms, you know, involved in somebody's life. It's like, hey, 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 I don't don't need to know about it. But, but, you know, and, and you go, wow, that attitude of gratitude. When was the last time that you told your wife, man, how much you appreciate her and you praise God for her in your life? ...attitude of gratitude. When was the last time that you prayed... ...instead of worried? Be anxious for nothing... ...but listen carefully... ...but in everything of prayer and supplication... ...with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God... ...and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding... ...will guard your heart and your mind... ...in Christ Jesus. Praise God, huh? His word is awesome. We take for granted... 3,000 languages, oral languages around the world that don't have the written word of God and we've got pulpits around our country who close the word of God, put it on the bottom shelf and they have videos and they have other things that are going on, everything but opening the word of God and preaching the word of God prayer and teaching and the ministry of the word where are we going? I'll tell you where we're going according to 1 Timothy we're going the same route that Alexander Hymenaeus went and it was spiritual shipwreck get back to the word of God I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a power of God into salvation. The people for whom we're to pray, He lets, he lets us know very carefully. In First Timothy two, he says, there's a general application, if you'll notice. The general application is at the end of this verse, we're told to pray for what? All men. Pray for all men. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. You'll notice that he says, Pray for all men. Pray for all men. And you know, and sometimes we, we got to be real careful what it means, you know, the word all. All men. Who are all men? Oh, that's right, all men. You know, we're looking for the deep hidden meanings. Now, you know what? It's amazing as our missionary friends spoke so accurately and articulately this morning that, you know what? Men would read the word of God. The spirit of God would move within them. And they thought this is what it meant. And that's what they acted upon. Wow. That is really something. This is what it means. This is what you do. Do it. Isn't that great? See, I'm a guy. I need it like that. You know what I mean? It's like it's too easy otherwise to miss it. Oh, I'm looking for the hidden meanings. You know what? That's what they were guilty of. They were looking for the hidden meanings, the genealogies. They were becoming astray from the faith because they were always looking for something that wasn't there. Instead of dealing with that which was very clear. That's what it means? Do it. This is what it means. Pray for all men. Those who are near, those who are far. ...those who are rich, those who are poor... ...those who are black, those who are white... ...those who are educated, those who are uneducated... ...those you like, those you don't... ...those who are enemies, those who are friends. Pray for all men. There should never be any exclusiveness to our prayer life. We are to pray for all men. Pray for all. You know what, and this wasn't an easy thing to say... ...because in Rome in 64 AD... ...and he also said, and especially for those who are in authority... He was referring to Nero, who was one of the most crude and demented men in authority position ever to walk the face of the earth. Nero used Christians as his scapegoat for the fire in Rome that nearly destroyed the city in 64 AD. And began to persecute anyone who was a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet the word of God tells us to pray for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. To pray for all who are in authority. I'm going to ask you a very personal question as we're kind of putting this all together, and that's this. Instead of complaining about them, when was the last time you prayed for your parents' children? You prayed for your teachers' students? You prayed for your coach, athlete? You prayed for your boss, employee? Or your manager? Or your church leaders? ...or your government leaders... ...the president and senators and congressmen and mayor... ...and council members and justices and judges and police officers... ...when was the last time instead of complaining about somebody... ...you prayed for them? You interceded for them? You came to God with petitions and intercessions on their behalf? What I have learned is a very clear lesson to me... ...and that is when I pray for others... ...my attitude about them changes... Or, as I pray, God clarifies and solidifies what needs to take place. See, I have an agenda. You have an agenda. We all do. We're all subjective. We may say, well, I'm totally objective. Anytime somebody says, I'm totally objective, and then they give a subjective point of view, you know, they're they're a little hypocritical, you know what I mean? It's like the hypocrisy, you know, some of the things that Mother taught us. I didn't have time to do this, but it reminds me of one of them. My mother taught me about hypocrisy. She said, if I've told you once, I've told you a million times, don't exaggerate. (laughs) You know, that type of thing. So we're to pray. And the reason that we're to pray is very clearly laid out. You know, the purpose of prayer... Is, he says, in order that. Anytime you see in the, in the Word of God, in order that or so that, it has to do with purpose. It always indicates God's purpose. Why should we pray for all men and why should we pray for those in authority? He says, so that we will have stability in our life. In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, stability. It's important to understand that authority has been established by God... ...as a minister for our good. Read Romans chapter 13. Now granted, where there are ungodly leaders... ...there will be chaos, there will be division... ...there will be disharmony, there will be injustice... ...but even that is better than total anarchy. Now I'm not making excuses for that kind of leadership. All I'm saying is is that it's better to have some authority... ...than no authority at all... ...because then each man becomes his own authority... ...and you have total anarchy. So even evil authority... Is better than no authority, because that's better than anarchy. But the ideal is godly leaders who serve justly and humbly. First Peter 5 says, Not lording it over those who are allotted to their charge, but as examples to the, to the flock. You know, the big argument with the disciples was who was going to be the greatest. It was like, you know, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right? Who's going to sit at your left? You know, I can't wait to be in charge so I can tell other people what to do. These are the same guys that said, Lord, you want us to call down fire out of heaven and destroy these people who don't see things our way. We asked them to pray about it, but they never came to the same conclusion, so now let's just hammer them. Woohoo! Boom! Now, they wanted to be in a position of authority. I don't think they were ready yet. And that's why Jesus used it as a time to teach about servant leadership. It is not so among you, godly leaders. It is not so among you. The Gentiles lorded over one another, but not so among you. You are to serve the flock of God as an example in all humility, following the leading of God and the word of God, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, we, we don't know which direction to go, then let's pray. First of all, above all, before we make any decisions, before we set an agenda, before we already got our minds made up, let's pray for God's leading. Let's search the scripture, the, light unto our, the, the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path, and then as we are all together, then we will move together. Because you know what? There, there, there is no room for Christian leaders to be dictatorial or autocratic. We are to be humble servant leaders. And that is very clear from the word of God. When we pray for our leaders, we pray so that we will have stability. And you know what? And and as equally or even more important, that we would pray for their salvation. This is good. Intrinsically good. Not just good in its effect, but good, period. This is good and it pleases God when we pray for the salvation of all men. It's been said that times of political and social upheaval are excellent times in which to die for Christ, but hard times to live for Him. And there's a lot of truth to that. It is good and acceptable. It conveys the idea of sacrifice or offering, the idea of worship. It is good. It's an act of worship to pray for the salvation of all men. It pleases God. It is acceptable in His sight. You can worship God by praying for the salvation of men... ...no matter where you are... ...driving to work... ...at your home... ...out on a golf course... ...wherever you are that God leads you to pray for the salvation of others... ...it is a spiritual act of worship that is pleasing to God... ...at that moment you offer it before Him... ...to pray for the salvation of all men... ...the question I have for you is the one I have for myself is... ...do I do that? Because the simplicity is... ...this is what the, God, the Word of God says... ...that we pray for all men... ...that we pray especially for those who are in authority... ...so that not only will we live peaceful and tranquil lives... ...but that also we would pray for their salvation... ...because you know what, without Christ... ...no matter how justly they lead... ...they're going to hell. You know, and the Roman government had a lot of just people. The centurions that we met through the book of Acts... ...were men who were just. They were objective to the standard of the laws that were set... They were fair. They were honest. They were just. But they were lost if they had not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, we'll close on some principles of prayer that are laid out for us in verses actually 5 through 8. I want to go through 8. And the principles are laid out are very simple. Number one, he says, for there is one God. We see the power of God. There is one God, only one God. This is one of the most fundamental teachings of Scripture... ...and it runs counter to the pluralistic religiosity of our world... ...which rejects the concept of any exclusive religion. We're taught by the spirit of our age... ...that the gods of the Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus... ...are to be charitably considered equally valid. And that is not true from Scripture... There is only one God, and he's the only one that can answer prayers. So if you don't know that God, your prayers can't be answered because there's no one home at the other end. I mean, it's so simple, but yet it's so confusing. You know, people are praying to gods that don't exist. Good luck getting that answered. There's only one God. And if there were more than one gods, there would be many ways of salvation and no need for evangelism. But since there's only one true God, then he's the one in whom all must believe to be saved. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which men can be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 4.12. Our prayer, therefore, must be that all come to the one true living God. It is he alone who can answer our prayers. There's no one else that can help us, the power of God. He also says, and because there's only one God, there's also only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the person of Christ. There is only one God and only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The word mediator refers to one who intervenes between two individuals to restore peace. Did you hear that? The person who intervenes between two individuals to restore peace. Man is at enmity with God. Sinners are at enmity with God. They are at odds with God. All born into the world as sinners come into the world at odds with God. We're in rebellion against God. We need someone to come and bridge that gap to make peace between ourselves and God. The Bible tells us there is no other way to heaven but through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other mediator between God and man than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's chosen mediator to bridge the gap between a rebellious mankind and a holy and righteous God. He is our mediator. There is no other. It's important to realize that we do not have to go through anyone else to approach the throne of God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our intercessor. He is our mediator. He is the one who offers petitions and, and, uh, and intercession prayers for us. John 17 is a great prayer of intercession where Jesus prays for us, his disciples, those at the time and those who would be to follow. He prays on our behalf. ...you don't have to go through any man... ...you don't have to go through any priest... ...you don't have to go through any saint... ...you don't have to go through any other channel... ...any other network... ...because none of them are the approved methods of God... ...the only approved method or mediator... ...between God and man... ...is the Lord Jesus Christ... ...and Him alone, period, amen. And that brings us to... ...since there's one God... ...one mediator... ...there's only one plan... ...and the plan of God is very simple... Jesus Christ gave himself in 6 verse 6 as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time and in the fullness of time God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law but yet not under the law that through him we would find our way to the Savior to, the, to God himself to forgiveness with God at the appropriate time he was born and appeared in the likeness of a man. He came into the world so that we can see truth and grace. We can behold him as he is. The bottom line is there's only one way to God and that's through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus said he freely came to give his life a ransom for many in Mark 10:45. I've come to give to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. The word ransom is a very rich term which means to buy back that which was lost. All of mankind was lost when Adam sinned. And the payment that was only satisfying payment to God is the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. He came to pay his life as a ransom for many. Sufficient for all, applicable only to those who believe. The plan of God. The reason that sinners are not struck dead at birth is because we're all born into the world as sinners. Psalm 51, I was conceived in my mother's womb in sin and in iniquity. We all come into the world. You know, I hear people joke about, you know what, well, if I ever go to church, you know, God's going to strike me dead because I know the kind of stuff that I'm doing. And, you know what, hey, let me tell you something. The only difference between one corpse and another is the state of decay. My chapel message this morning for the angels is Ephesians chapter 2, you were all dead in your sins. The only difference between one corpse and another is the state of decay, but we're all dead. The wages of sin is death. We're all spiritually separated from God for those who have not come to accept the ransom that God offered on behalf of our payment or the payment that is required for sin. You know, the bottom line of all this is all have sinned and all deserve God's judgment. It is God's mercy, His grace, His patience that gives us and that's what He says here. And for this reason, I was appointed a teacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. You know what, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God is patient with all men in order that those who will come may come. You know, we would never be born into the world. You can say, hey, you know what, I don't want any sinful presence at all in the world. But we're born into the world sinners that enmity with God and he sent a mediator to bridge the gap between us and God. For those who trust and believe in him all are invited that's the point of i've been a, I've appointed a teacher of the gentiles in faith and truth what it meant was that you know god's salvation is not just available to the jews it's available to who to all men that's why we pray for all men. It's an open salvation message to all men. For God so loved the world. The world of what? All men, everybody, pray for their salvation. That God is toward, patient towards them. So that then, as we pray for them, that God hears our prayers and responds accordingly to those whom he has elected. And the last thing is the purity of man. Nothing will stifle the prayer of man quicker than being sinful before God. It says, let every man, let, let men... I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Holy hands has to do with those hands that are pure before God. You can't come to God and and ask him to meet your needs if if you're living in sin. You can't approach a holy and righteous God in his presence and ask for anything if you're sinful. He says, hey, repent of your sin. Turn from sin. Confess your sin. Then you can boldly approach the throne of grace that you may find mercy at your time of need. But you can't go to God. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, it says that, men, if we're having a problem with our wives, that it even hinders our prayers to God. That's what wrath and dissension, lay it all aside and come to God and pray. What have we learned from this? Number one, the priority of prayer, it's our first resource, not our last resort. Always pray before acting. I will guarantee you, according to the word of God, if you pray first and then act, the chances of you acting in a wrong way are less likely than if you acted first and then prayed that God would then validate what you just did. First resource, not last resort. As to the pattern of prayer, that God would meet our needs. Give us this day our daily bread, that we would come and worship him. God, you're awesome. The creator of heaven and earth, man, how awesome you are. I go out sometimes at night or when I'm on a run and I look around and go, oh man, you know what, how awesome is God? Just look at his creation. You go on a vacation, and you look around and you see what God has created and you go, man, you know, the variety of fish, you're swimming, you're looking, you're snorkeling, going, this is unbelievable how awesome and creative and powerful is our God. You know, you think about, I was in Hawaii not long ago in volcanic forces, you know, on the big island of Hawaii. And you go, wow, the power of a volcano. And then you realize that, you know what, it's nothing in God's hand. He controls it all. The storm, when they were walking out and Peter was walking on the storm and he was looking around and he was panicking. And wow, the storm. And Jesus said, be still. And that was it. And they said, who is this man that even, that even the storm would listen to him? He's no man, that's why. He's God in human flesh who came to give his life a ransom for those who would trust in him. As for the people, we pray, all men, especially those in authority. The purpose, so that we would have stability in our own lives, but more importantly, that they would come to salvation in theirs. The principle, there's only one God. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one plan of God for salvation, and that we would introduce people to that one God, that one mediator, and that one plan. And the only way for us to pray and approach God ...and say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. May my ways be pure before you... ...so that you can hear the meditations of my heart... ...and the prayers of my lips. What have we learned? If nothing else, we've learned to pray. Father, thank you, and that's what we'll do. We come before you today, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for you being the only God... ...that we can boldly approach the throne of grace... ...that we may find help in our time of need. We thank you for the only mediator between God and man... ...the Lord Jesus Christ... And that through him, we now have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those who repent, turn from sin, turn to God. Believe that Jesus Christ came to give his life a ransom for many. That he died for my sins. That he arose again three days later and conquered sin and death and the grave and the enemy. And that God, as we receive him as our Savior, you tell us that we are born again from above, not an act of human will but that of God's. For it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us could ever boast. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We pray now that we will commit to becoming men and women who pray first and then act upon that which you lead us to do. And may we glorify you in those things. In Christ's name, amen.